0: There's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where billionaires and celebrities go through. And school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I've learned is that there's always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in.
1: CEOs on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep, deep knowledge, and just by listening to this podcast, you are working toward your goals every single day. If you are ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better, Every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at MentorBox.com today. There, you'll find a course from today's guest, Alex Benayan. Alex is only 25 years old, but he has already met Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, the late Maya Angelou, Steve Wozniak, Tim Ferriss, and many, many more cream-of-the-crop celebrities and successful individuals. And he hasn't just met them, you know, at a show or at a speaking event or something like that. He has endeavored and plotted elaborate journeys to get to each of these people for a complete one-on-one interview. The result of these conversations and of the adventure thereabout is his book, The Third Door, his story is the perfect meta narrative of striving to learn from and simultaneously achieve status among the all time greats. His relentless perseverance yielded not only countless nuggets of pure gold mentorship and advice, but also thrilling, hilarious, and even extremely heartwarming moments, all of which you're going to want to hear. We discuss some of the key interactions and moves he made to get to them, but I cannot implore you enough to go by the third door immediately after you finish listening and read about the rest for yourself. Enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to the MentorBox Podcast. I'm your host, content coordinator Tyler Lay, as usual, and today I'm speaking with Alex Benayan. Alex, it's so great to have you on chat here with me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: Likewise, man. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We did an amazing shoot. It was a, it was, I think it was a Friday afternoon in LA and me and videographer Will were kind of on our last legs of that three or four day trip where we did like seven or eight shoots in just a couple days. And you really just like revived us, unfortunately, just for our flight home. But you you really (laughs) gave us some life at the end of that week, just by the, your presentation on your book, The Third Door. And uh, we'll talk plenty about it as we go in and out. But what really surprised me the most is a, just how, like literally flawlessly and perfectly you delivered all the stories that you told and b, the story of those stories, which is largely how you weren't initially expecting this book, the third door to to be what it was in a lot of ways or to kind of uh, hit the public as it as it did and and is going to. Because you weren't really expecting it to be a story about yourself in a lot of ways, in your own journey. Is that fair to say, kind of at the starting point, you weren't
0: expecting that? Yeah, absolutely. Because when I had started writing the book seven years ago, my original idea was, you know, I'm just going to go and interview all these, you know, highly successful people who I looked up to. And each chapter would be about a different person, you know, Bill Gates, chapter one. Steve Wozniak, Chapter Two; Lady Gaga, Chapter Three. I thought it would just be a Q and A where I would, you know, put the answers in their own words. And about one year into my publishing deal, which was about you know three years into the journey of the book as a whole, I got a call from my publisher, and I you know I go in and I'm meeting with this guy, and he's this incredible editor, you know, really gruff New York guy, oh, he calls yeah. me into his office. I know the type. <laughs> And he's like, Alex, you know, uh, what's the point of your book? I'm like, what, what do you mean? And he goes, <laughs> you have to understand, we're, we've been working together for a year.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, is the point of your book to inform people or is it to change their lives? And I was like, well, yeah, I, I hope it's to change their lives. And he goes, well, the book you're writing isn't going to do that. Oh, OK. Interesting. And I was really confused. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like why are you waiting a year to bring this up? And he's like, ah, he's like, I know you. You wouldn't have listened if I said it earlier.
1: (laughs) Uh, Sounds like a good relationship between you and your editor, at least.
0: Yeah, he's a great, he's an amazing guy. And what he told me is that, you know, a magazine Q&A, as great as it is, has never changed anyone's life. You know, it, it just gives information. As great as bullet points are, or, you know, highlightable quotes, like that's great information. What changes someone's life is a story where they can see themselves in. Whereas the main character goes on this quest and overcomes all these obstacles and learns these lessons along the way, so does the reader. And what I've learned is that you can give someone all the best knowledge and tools in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible – they'll never be the same.
1: I see. And I want to give people a bit more context uh, here because now that you bring that up, the idea of, you know, a magazine interview, I, I now I realize, like, yeah, I do see those a lot. Like, you can just Google, like, Bill Gates interview or, you know, Lady Gaga interview. And, of course, they're, like, they're pretty common. You know, certain people are, are less likely to give interviews because they're more reclusive or whatever it is. But for most, you know, big-time people, they get solicited for interviews and that sort of thing so often that, you know, even if they give into like 1%, there's still going to be 100 on the internet. And what's fascinating about this case and your story is that, like you said, you had been writing the book for seven years, but you literally started that as an 18 year old, like as a freshman in college, right? Right. And you, that's what like blew me away when you first came in. And basically the first sentence that you spoke on camera was, Um, Your story about how you were just like destined to become a doctor, like you're basically just expected to go to med school because of, you know, just like simple family expectations and that sort of thing. And that is, of course, like a a deeply noble and difficult to achieve goal, like a great thing to do with your life. But you were basically just like, I want to achieve of like a similar echelon of life experience and, you know, helping others. But in like an even more difficult way that has even less of like a charted path in front of it, and you basically just like set off on that as an 18 year old. And the fact that you didn't kind of see that as like a wild story in the beginning, like blows my mind that you're like, yeah, this is going to be, you know, a, a success principles book, like you're going to meet those crazy people. But like that that was going to be a hard journey. Right. Like you knew that from the start.
0: Oh, you know, what's funny is I actually had no idea it would be hard in the beginning, which is why I I set off to do
1: it. So like it sounded like every month you realize like, okay now I have to skip this final or like now I have to fail this class and then retake it again. And eventually you're like, now I have to just drop fuck out. You just had to like cut it all off and just really do the book. And like I want to know what that psychological journey was like for you more deeply.
0: Exactly. Because, you know, that's the beauty of being naive. So the whole, <laughs> like you said, you know, the whole journey started when I was an 18 year old, mm-hmm. I was a freshman in college and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. Yeah. And to understand why I was going through that crisis, you have to understand where I came from. And, and you know, you mentioned it a bit, which is that I'm the son of Jewish immigrants, which mm-hmm. pretty much means I came out of the womb My mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. (laughs) And, you know, you think it's funny, but in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween and thought I was cool. You know, I was was that. (laughs) So, you know, in high school, I checked all the boxes. I, you know, took all the science classes, went to pre-med summer camp, obsessed over the SATs. And by the time I got to college, I'm the pre-med of pre-meds. But very quickly, I remember – you know, lying on this dorm room bed, looking over at this towering stack of biology books on my desk, feeling like they were dementors sucking the life out of me. And at first I assumed I was just being lazy, but eventually I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So now not only do I not know what I want to do with my life, you know, I'm also starting to wonder how all these people who I looked up to, how they did it. You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? How did Steven Spielberg, when he was rejected from film school, become the youngest studio director in Hollywood history? Yeah, yeah. know, these are the things they don't normally teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be a book out there with the answers. And, you know, mentor box didn't exist when I was in college. (laughs) I just, you know, went to the library and went on Amazon and just started ripping through business books and self-help books and biographies. But eventually I was left empty handed. There wasn't, you know, one book with a sole focus on how when, you know, no one's taking your phone calls, no one will take your meetings. How do you find a way to break through and launch your career? So that's when my naive eighteen-year-old thinking kicked in, and I thought, "Well, if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself?"
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I like I said, I thought it'd be super easy. I would just call up Bill Gates and interview him, interview <laughs> everybody else, and I'd be done in a few months. That I assumed would be the easy part. The hard part I figured was getting the money to fund the journey, because you know I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. So about two nights before final exams, I'm in the library doing what everybody's doing in the library right before finals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm on Facebook and I'm sitting there on Facebook and I see someone posting offering free tickets to the prices, right? And the game show was filming, you know, actually a few miles away from my college campus. So the first thought I had was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund the dream? Mm-hmm. You know, not my brightest moment, but I had a <laughs> I had never seen a full episode of the show before. You know, I've of course seen bits and pieces of the prices, right? When I was homesick from school, but I'd never seen a full episode. Plus, I had finals in two days. You know, I told myself it was a dumb idea and not think about it. But, I remember, I actually remember very vividly sitting at this round wooden table in the corner of the library and the, I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where a thought just keeps clawing itself back into your mind as, you know, as much as you tell yourself to stop thinking about it.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So I just, you know, I took out a spiral notebook and opened to a fresh page and I wrote best and worst case scenarios. And, you know, worst case scenarios, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid. Mom stops talking to me. No, mom kills me. You know, there was like (laughs) 20 odds. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it felt as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night, I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack The Price is (laughs) Right. And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy, and I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book.
1: How did you hack The Price is Right? Can you reveal (laughs) any of those secrets in a minute so we don't waste too much time on it. But yeah, totally. (laughs) I'm really curious.
0: The, you know, the whole story is hilarious and is like this whole like 30 minute long saga. But the one minute version is essentially I learned, you know, I pulled that all nighter and during the all nighter, I learned that the price is right. Isn't completely random. There's a producer who interviews every single person in the audience before the show begins. On top of that, there's an undercover producer. So between figuring that out, that's how I figured out how to be called down. And then once I got called down, there was a whole adventure in and of itself. And, you know, my version of hacking is less Albert Einstein and more Forrest Gump. But <laughs>
1: it ended up going really well. I actually have two friends from college at Boston University who are – they work in, like, the film realm in L.A. And since graduating, they had spent some time there. In LA and they they both went on prices right and they both actually ended up doing the same thing you know essentially winning it all like one of them won a, a jet ski and the other one actually won a car and neither of them had need for either of those things I think they're both also going to sell them but the reason they were able to do that is because a they they had like the inside knowledge already to know about those producers so like I think I just I'm just realizing now that's what they were referring to is like, you know, if you know the right person, they kind of like help you get in. And then B, they had been watching the show like all their lives. So they were just like good at the show. It sounds like you just you like watched an entire, you know, lifetime worth of The Price is Right in about, you know, two hours and just like mastered it overnight, which is (laughs) as impressive as mastering a biology book, I would say, if not more. So (laughs) thank you, man. Good on you. That's that's so wild. So like that right there, deciding not to, you know, study the thing that you basically all your life thought or like, you know, were training to study for in some ways. You know, it's not like the MCAT or like, you know, your final med school examination or anything like that. But like this was on that path of of becoming a doctor. And you just you finally sort of gave in to that gnawing feeling and you made a switch and you, you put the skills to use that you had developed, which is like obviously a great ability to learn effectively, quickly and robustly. But you really made like what seems to be like a difficult psychological switch by actually writing down the pros and cons of the situations and basically saying like, I will take the risk of my mother murdering me (laughs) on the prices. Right. So what what did those moments feel for you because along your story there are clearly many of them and i i like I, I think probably the biggest one was you know maybe to drop out which you ended up doing i could be wrong but what did those feel like were there moments where you were like you were still unsure if this would ultimately work out like as deep as you know after you had made the publishing deal and everything cuz like when it sounds like your editor asked you straight up like what's the purpose of this book Did those moments keep coming up like, oh man, is this going to work out? Is this worth it? Or had you gotten to a point where you were just like, this journey is so insanely fun and informational and just wild that it's just completely worth it no matter what the outcome?
0: You know, I was terrified at every step of the way. Yeah. And when I had started working on the book, I had this assumption that, you know, all these people we look up to, whether it's Bill Gates or Elon Musk, have to be fearless. You know, how else could they do what they've done? But during these seven years of research and interviews, I've learned that every single one of the people who I spoke to was actually tremendously scared throughout the process. So it's not fearlessness that's the goal it's courage. And I learned there's a critical difference. Fearlessness is jumping off the cliff and, you know, not thinking about it. You know, that's idiotic in my opinion. (laughs) I would agree. You know, courage on the other hand is acknowledging your fears, analyzing the consequences And then deciding you care so much about it, you're still going to take one thoughtful step forward anyway. And that not only has been one of the most important realizations on my journey, but it's one of the most important things I've learned from studying some of the world's most successful people that it's not fearlessness they're after, but courage.
1: I think each of the stories that you told in the studio were really really demonstrative of this and especially the the Jessica Alba one that you told and that's also you know very much a a personal story of yours but that that really hits home because I I think it's it's like a meta-narrative what you tell in this story because you kind of started you know naive which I think in a lot of ways might have been pretty fearless and then you came to this conclusion along the way that it's a, it's a different sort of attitude that's going to that's gonna result in the fulfillment that you are ultimately seeking. Do you know where in particular along this journey you made that differentiation?
0: I've learned that when you're in the trenches on your journey, it doesn't matter if you're starting a company, if you're trying to be a musician, any kind of you know big dream that you're going after. There's this assumption that I had that there's a point that you reach your tipping point, you know, where everything just starts clicking and falling into place. You know, whether it's, you know, if you're an author getting on Oprah or if you're a musician being tweeted out by Taylor Swift, like everybody, there's this assumption that you just keep working until you hit your tipping point and then everything gets easier. What I've learned is that there is no such thing as a tipping point. It's all little steps. And, you know, going back to your question of, you know, when it all became clear and when it all started, you know, clicking for me mentally, there was never this tipping point, you know, euphoric epiphany. It was all just little steps. And even if someone out there is still searching for what they want to do with their life, The same principle applies, which it doesn't come with the fanfare of epiphany. It comes in the form of little whispers that, truthfully, if you just spend most of your days running around and on autopilot, you'll ignore those whispers for the rest of your life. They come in little morsels, almost breadcrumbs of clues and it's up to you to pay attention and piece them together and only in hindsight is that epiphany loud and clear
1: i'm so glad you said that i'm the kind of person that is very reluctant to look at individuals who are you know considered any certain way but that are considered you know highly successful and say okay i need to copy everything that that person has done and learn everything about that person and how they live, what their habits are, what their beliefs are, and how they practice, how they've reached their place, and, and then think that that's going to achieve me similar success. I'm very reluctant to look at individuals like, like those that are even in your book. I think you know a biography from those folks can only teach you so much, especially if it's from one person. And I think it's the the collective of stories from the different perspectives, which you have a great diversity of perspectives, of course, in the book, not only just like, you know, in terms of industry and particular achievement, but in terms of what that individual represents and looks like culturally, socially, you know, racially, ethnically, all those things. And I'm a big believer that it's it's more of a an understanding of different mindsets and a collective understanding of, of what success represents and looks like that helps you reach your individual goals. And I think it's really remarkable that you refer to them as whispers along the way. Does that imply that it was a series of kind of subtleties in the, in the many different interviews that you did with these folks? Or was it or, or was each one, you know, seriously impactful to you such that they all kind of collectively, even though they're impactful, you know, it was just one whisper in a series of whispers that led to a great, you know, booming voice in hindsight. Do you, do you see what I'm asking there?
0: Yeah, you know, each interview in and of itself was extremely powerful.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine they weren't. (laughs) These were big people.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they all taught me incredible lessons from, you know, Bill Gates teaching me his negotiating secrets to Steve Wozniak teaching me his secrets to redefining happiness to Jessica Alba talking about the keys to launching a billion dollar business and harnessing your fears. You know, so it's sort of across the spectrum of lessons. From Like you said, a really diverse cast of people, but it was really, again, like you brought up in your question, it was the whispers that only until about 70% into my journey did I start looking back in hindsight and you know sort of piecing them together. It's sort of like if you're listening to, let's say, a music album, it's only about w- – You know, 70% into the album, can you start noticing the, you know, the different patterns and melodies that are sort of this common thread? And for me, the realization was that every single one of these people I interviewed, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Bill Gates who grew up wealthy in Seattle or Maya Angelou who grew up, you know, without much resources in Stamps, Arkansas or Jane Goodall or – you know, Lady Gaga or Quincy Jones, no matter how different they are on the outside. At their core, they all treat life and business and success the exact same way. Really? Yeah. And the analogy that came to me because I was 21 at the time was that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. There's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where billionaires and celebrities go through. And school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I've learned is that there's always, always, the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen, there's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal, they all took the third door.
1: Hey, so sorry to interrupt this conversation with Alex Benayan, but I wanna let you know where you can learn more about his journey to meet with high-powered celebrities and successful individuals. He recorded a full series of lectures exclusively for MentorBox.com members. If you want access to that and hundreds of other courses, be sure to sign up at MentorBox.com today. All right, back to the show. My initial response to that is, what if you get thrown out the club?
0: (laughs) It's not what if; it's what happens when you get thrown out of the club.
1: <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm sure all these people have encountered, you know, some sorts of controversies, controversies in their careers. But this is, of course, you know, on this scale, it's like the club of the world. It's a these people are all, you know, internationally renowned individuals. Yeah, you know,
0: exactly. And although your question is sort of funny, it's actually very accurate in the sense <laughs> that when Lady Gaga. Got her first offer for a record deal. She ended up you know, going to the offices of the record label, sitting in the lobby, and they just never called her into the meeting. Really? And she just sat there for like hours and hours and hours until she finally got the hint that like they canceled on her and don't want to sign her. Wow. So she had to you know, go back out and hustle again until she got her next big break. So it's never a clean – you know, magical process, it always is, you know, sometimes three steps forward, two steps back kind of thing.
1: Interesting. What was the biggest example that you encountered of, of that, like a, like a major obstacle really pushing somebody back two steps? Was it Lady Gaga or are there any others where somebody really kind of hit a roadblock or even, you know, was at the top and then was just set back a hundred steps, anything like that? Yeah, there's
0: been a ton
1: Many of us know the story of Maya Angelou and all that, just really difficult life. I'm just thinking, you know, anybody in in particular, in in maybe even like a particularly public career incident or anything like that, where that was really central to your interview with that person even, or what you learned from them.
0: Absolutely. You know, whether it was Jane Goodall or Maya Angelou, like you brought up, what I've learned is that. And Maya Angelou did a remarkable job of sharing about this in her chapter, which is that what defines Maya Angelou are not all of the you know hardships she's faced in her life. You know, she was raped at age eight, she was, you know, beaten by her partner, she was you know, working as a prostitute in a madam. She got pregnant as a teenager. She, you know, faced these challenges that I can't even imagine what it feels like. But what defines her isn't the darkness. It's really how she turned that darkness into light.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And what she taught me and what so many of the other interviews echoed is that you can't control the cards you're dealt. You can control how you're going to channel those experiences. And Maya Angelou is probably one of the best examples of someone taking unbelievable, you know, just heartbreaking circumstances and turning them into powerful works of art that have changed lives forever. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah, to highlight that, I I remember very clearly in my my first home from when I was like one to maybe six years old, my mother had a, like a small bookshelf and always outturned on that bookshelf for, for whatever reason. I'm not sure if she was a particular fan of Maya Angelou, but I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings was always sort of visible on that bookshelf. And I remember just like picking it up and reading it like when I was first learning to read and that sort of thing. And wow. Yeah. I, I honestly don't remember much of it, but then I kind of encountered it in high school and I was like, Oh yeah, this is something that I've seen a lot. And that's like where I, you know, officially learned of her story. It wasn't like the full story is kind of the suburban high school watered down version of a, of a difficult adverse life story. And then in college, I learned a lot more. But I remember very specifically just knowing that she was a fantastic poet and really enjoying her work because, like, it had just always been visible to me, and it was on that bookshelf. And and mm, that, I love that, that that's like what I knew about Gaia <laughs> Angelou is that she is, you know, a beautiful soul and a wonderful poet and speaker and all of those things. And that's and that is how I know her today, despite, of course, you know, all that adversity and. I'm, I'm so glad that you had that conversation with her to to learn that from her perspective. That's That must have been, again, I can't wait to get a chance to read the book so I can learn more about that situation. That seems like a really remarkable experience.
0: Yeah, it was very fortunate for many reasons, not the least of which was that my Angelou passed away almost exactly a year after our interview. So it was oh, wow. a really you know, profound moment in my life to to have that chance to be able to learn from her.
1: Yeah, well, that's, I'm so glad you were able to as well. Yeah, I, it is sad that she has passed. Before we finish up, I want to ask you a couple of important questions that I'd like to give to our guests who have written certain kinds of books. Um, The first one, and you do talk about this in the book, I believe, Um, but I want to kind of flip the question a little bit and see if I can dig a little bit more out of it. Who is your mentor? Briefly, who is your primary mentor? And what was it that you sought when you were first seeking that mentor? Or if, if it was more spontaneous, you can address that as well. But do you now, or do you plan to at any point have a mentee as well?
0: When I was two years into the process of writing the book, you know, my big dream interview was getting to Bill Gates. That was my holy grail interview. And about two years into it, I finally got on the phone with Bill Gates's chief of staff. And the fact that I was on the phone with him made me feel like I was 95% there. You have to understand, I'm 19 years old. I'm standing in a, you know, CVS parking lot holding an ice cream cone when I get this phone call.
1: Still a little bit naive at that point, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm still a bit naive now, too. So. <laughs> so I get this phone call, and he, he's like, so you want to interview Bill, huh? And, you know, I'm like, of course, my biggest dream. And I start, you know, telling him all about the book. And he's like, look, I love what you're doing. I love that you're doing to help your generation. But the thing is, you're only about 5% there. He's like, go get a publishing deal. Go get more momentum and commulator. And he hangs up. <laughs> Classic. And I, you know, I've never even heard the word momentum before. Other, other than like a physics class. I was like, what is he talking about? And I remember going back to my dorm room with my head in my hands, just, you know, rocking back and forth in my chair thinking, you know, if I'm five percent there to Bill Gates and I already am on the phone with his chief of staff, that must mean I'm, you know, at negative, you know, 50% with Bill Clinton or Richard Branson. And as I was thinking about that, I remembered I had heard somebody say, it was as if there was this itch on my mind. And I could remember someone telling me once that like Richard Branson spoke on a cruise ship once and I think I just needed to procrastinate. So I took out my laptop and Googled, you know, Richard Branson cruise ship. (laughs) It seems like a
1: very broad
0: search. (laughs) Yeah. To my surprise, this article popped up. And it was exactly what I remembered somebody mentioning to me once. It said, you know, Summit Series takes the high seas. And Richard Branson will be the keynote speaker on the cruise ship with Gary Vaynerchuk and Blake Mycoskie and Tim Ferriss and, you know, this incredible lineup of entrepreneurs, which in many ways was like my dream, you know, this was the cruise ship version of the book I was writing. And I'm reading this article and at the end it says Summit Series was founded by serial entrepreneur Elliot Bisno, who's 26 years old. I was like, what? I remember being like thrown back in my chair because I had a 26-year-old cousin and I thought, you know, to be the CEO of a conference like this, you had to be, you know, you know, fifty or sixty years old. And I started Googling Elliot Bisno, and I just get sucked into this rabbit hole of You know, Google search, hours are passing by. I'm missing, you know, meals without noticing. The sun's going down, and I'm just clicking and clicking, reading everything I can about this guy. And although I couldn't really get a grip on who he was, because all these articles mentioned him, but none really described who he was, I felt this really overwhelming sense of connection with him. And I remember writing on my journal that night, opening to a fresh page and writing Dream Mentors across the top. And on the first line, I wrote Elliot Bisno. And I closed my eyes and I said a prayer. And a couple weeks later, you know, I just couldn't get Elliot out of my mind. So, you know, it was, I think, you know, two or three nights before an accounting exam and, you know, a really big exam. And again, I couldn't get Elliot out of my mind. So to, you know, focus on my studying, I was like, all right, let me just write him a cold email and see what happens so I can get back to studying. And when I had interviewed Tim Ferriss, Tim had taught me this secret cold email template. So I used the Tim Ferriss cold email template and use that to message Elliot. And I got a response right away saying, great email. What are you doing on Thursday? And I looked at my calendar and Thursday was my accounting final. So I told Elliot the only answer that I could. I said, I'm completely free. What do you have in mind? And he goes, perfect. Meet me at 8am at this hotel and read this book before we meet. So it actually wasn't too bad because my final wasn't until noon. He said he wanted to meet at 8 a.m. You know, the hotel was only an hour away from my college campus, so it was perfect. And sure enough, I go there, I meet him at 8 a.m., but our 15 minute meeting turns into a four hour meeting. I end up missing my final, but I end up having the greatest days ever with him. And we end up spending that whole summer traveling the world together. And Elliot has not only become one of my biggest mentors, but he's become my best friend, who's like a brother to me now Wow so the power of mentors has really been one of the most profound and deeply rooted themes of the third door, not just in my journey, but if you're looking at how Warren Buffett launched his career. there was a mentor that changed his life. If you're looking at how Steven Spielberg launched his career, there's a mentor that changed his life and All of these people are incredible examples of the fact that, you know, there's an amazing proverb that says, one person's hindsight can be your foresight. And that's really what a mentor is.
1: So who do you plan to mentor? If you don't have one in the works now, because of course you're still very young, what kind of person? I mean, do you see another, you know, Alex Benayan trying to write a book or to you know start their own company somebody else in this sphere of you know grand great minds delivering their knowledge and their expertise and their experience somebody who's trying to you know bring those things together is that the kind of person that you would like to mentor
0: yeah absolutely so what i've learned about mentorship is it comes in different forms so there's one kind, you know, on one end of the spectrum, there's the relationship I had with Elliot, which is like a mentor who's essentially becomes like a best friend, who's with you every step of the way, who goes very deep. On the other hand, there are, I count some people as mentors who, or I feel like some people are mentors who I've never met before. And I've just, I've read their books and I, You know, I've watched every single interview I can on Jerry Seinfeld. I think he's one of the most wise and smart philosophers on earth. I know Mm -hmm. he's technically a comedian, but in my eyes, he's a philosopher.
1: No, I I absolutely agree with that.
0: (laughs) Right. If you if you after you laugh at his jokes, if you actually go back and think about them, they're probably some of the smartest and most profound things. Oh, absolutely. And he tells a lot of meta comedy
1: jokes as well, where he's. You know, inspecting oh, yeah. what the comedy is and what it represents, and why the joke is funny, and that sort of thing, and that to me, right—that's
0: you understand human nature so much through that. Yeah. So you know, the other spectrum. You know, I've never met Jerry Seinfeld, but in some ways, he's mentored me tremendously over the years. So I think of mentorship as this broad spectrum. Where, yeah, I definitely have a few people that I spend a lot of time with, and I help them. You know, and guide them through their process. And on the other end, even conversations like this, where people who I'll never be able to meet in person will be able to hear this. And hopefully this helps them guide them on their process too.
1: And your book as well. I mean, you already know that plenty of people are reading your book. And I've even said folks in our office are, at MentorBox are reading the book and are clearly inspired and have sent you emails and that sort of thing. So
0: yeah, it's been really remarkable. And I'm just so grateful. You know, one of my favorite things is that during this book launch process, there are, of course, you know, really good moments. There are some hard moments. But if I ever, you know, lose sight on what the purpose of this book is, I will, you know, just go to the book's Amazon page or even on Audible and just look at like just a few reviews. And hearing from people who I have never met, who I may never know their name, hearing that this book changed what they believe is possible. You know, reading someone use the words, you know, changed my life. I've had so many Books that have changed my life. So I know how deep of a statement that is and what a you know really profound compliment that is. You know, in some ways that's even mentorship on the highest level. Oh, absolutely. So I'm so grateful for the books that and the authors that came before me, whether it's Maya Angelou or some of my personal favorites, you know, delivering happiness by Tony Shea or Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand or The 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss or The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, these books have had such a deep and profound impact on me. The fact that I'm able to contribute in whatever way I can back is a really humbling and, in my opinion, just a remarkable and lucky position that I'm in that I'm very, very grateful for.
1: So one last question then. Let's flip the coin a little bit. Now that you've been through all this, you've had such a fulfilling experience, you know, on the journey to writing the book. It's out there now and it is changing lives. What at this point keeps you up at night?
0: Hmm. I love sleep. So nothing keeps me up at <laughs> night, but I, I do understand the essence of the question of course. and the essence you know, I'm trying to give this some thought to make sure I really can answer it well. And I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, you know, every now and then, what keeps me up at night is my my family, my mom, my sisters, and making sure they're doing okay. Mm-hmm. And we've had a really hard hard year with my dad passing away last year. And yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you, man. It's been. A year where as much as you can't try to prepare for, there's no way to prepare for something like that. And it's brought up things that I didn't even know existed and a kind of pain that I didn't know I could feel. And while my pain is hard in and of itself, sometimes it's my mom and my sisters that you know, keeps me extra worried.
1: Well, I think you're at a place now where the work that you're doing is, I don't know what the right word is, but it's, it's impressive and it's important and it's helping people. So I hope that in some way, if possible, you know, that gives a bit of solace to your mom and sister that, you know, you are able to thrive and hopefully they can, you know, feel positive as well watch you grow.
0: That means a lot, man. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. I, again, I so appreciate the energy that you bring to this topic of, of self-development, but of storytelling, of the journey. Uh, we actually recently did a fiction lesson on The Alchemist at MentorBox. We actually just published it this week. And I, I've i read that myself. And I, I actually think of you a lot whenever I whenever I was working on that. I was like, you know, this just... I'm thinking a lot about Alex and, and his story. It felt like a, a, a modern sort of journey wow. there. So again, thank you so much for your energy here and, and the work that you've done. I, I greatly appreciate your willingness to work with MentorBox and to have this conversation with me too. So thank you.
0: That means a lot, man. Thank you. So before we sign
1: off, um, the book is The Third Door. Do you want to give any other Modes of learning for you, uh, learning from you to our listeners. Any ways to contact you or to you know find you on social media, anything like that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook—it's all the same handle. It's at Alex Benayan, so A L E X B A N A Y N. And if you heard about the third door and you got it through the podcast, definitely let me know so I can say thank you and give you a. Digital High Five, Um, and of course, obviously, The Third Door is available everywhere books are sold. So Audible, Kindle, um, local bookstores, Amazon, iBooks, you name it.
1: Did you do the the narration on Audible?
0: Oh, my goodness. I did, and it was one of the most fun parts of the entire experience because, you know, writing – so the writing process in and of itself – was grueling in the way of, you know, building a house is grueling. As much as, you know, you're so inspired to do it, there's still a lot of physical labor that goes into it. You know, this was a seven-year journey. The cool thing about the audiobook is you record it only when the book is 100% done. <laughs> but it still
1: takes so a while. while right? Right? <laughs> like five days of sitting yeah. in a chair just speaking into a microphone.
0: <laughs> okay, so ready for some behind the scenes stuff, which is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so almost nobody, so like you said, everybody sits behind a chair and stands up. And my thinking was well, what would happen if I do the opposite? Mm hmm. What if instead of sitting down in a chair for five days and just sort of, you know, reading the book in a monotone voice, what if I just completely flip the energy? What if I stand up for the entire recording session? And, and you know, the executive editor of, you know, Random House Audio was like, well, nobody does that because it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, trust me, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Challenge and, <laughs> exactly i was like challenge accepted so not only did i do the whole audiobook standing up i also worked with a voice coach who used to you know work with michael jackson wow. so i had that and then we also you know out of my own pocket i commissioned a hollywood composer to create an original score for the audiobook for you know to tie together you know the beginning middle and end so there's this dramatic beautiful Score that's inspired by the narrative of the book,
1: wow. you even made like the most boring part of the entire book process incredibly exciting. That's so amazing.
0: It was the most fun thing. and by far one of the best compliments I've ever gotten came from the vice president at Random House Audio and he said that this was the highest rated audiobook he's seen in years. Wow.
1: I mean, I'm not surprised. I like I said, I I was blown away by your storytelling and the fact that you supplemented it with those things is, is of course going to add to that. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> That's so cool though. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Everybody else that I've spoken to about their audiobook is like, yeah, oh man, I thought my back was going to go out just from like sitting in the same position, like the exact <laughs> distance from the microphone the entire time. Like it, it just sounds like it was like physically grueling and just like you, you start to just like the words start to sound weird when you say them over and over and it just, it sounds difficult, but I'm glad you had a good experience. I
0: I loved it.
1: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much again for joining us and for shooting the video series with us. Um, I promise again that I will get to reading the book as soon as possible and I'll let you know what I think and drop you a review as well. Um, But, but thank you so much for being here with us and, Everybody else, thanks so much for tuning in. We will catch you on the next episode. Cheers.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors, as well as all of our authors, teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast. We'll